Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN, the Survival Podcast Network headquarters. Uh, today is Wednesday, September 28th, 2011, and this is episode 751, and today's episode is called Consumerism versus Common Sense, and it was inspired by a new book that I've read probably 10% of at this point, but uh, it got me thinking back to the way I've, you know, some of the things I really talked about a lot when I first started the show, way back in the days when I used to be in the car doing the show for the first 400-odd episodes, I talked a lot about making, you know, making smart decisions with our money and how important that would be going forward, and I think that that is actually more true now than it's ever been before. And uh, as I was reading this book, I, I, I'm actually very impressed with this book. Again, it's called Early Retirement Extreme, and it's not really a how-to-retire book. It's how-to-think-so-you-can-retire book, and uh, the guy retired in his 30s. And uh, I'm going to try to get him on the air. And like I said, I'm only 10% through with it, but as I'm reading it, I'm going, well, this guy must study permaculture. And, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just save that. There'll be more on that in a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors and our housekeeping. And if you usually skip that, don't, because I'm going to start out with a couple of updates on some contest things. Number one, BulkAmmo.com, one of our awesome sponsors, has just launched, uh, actually renewed their advertising with us and kind of wanted to kick that off with a new contest and be the next uh, big contest. So they're giving over, they're giving $450 in top quality ammo away to the audience. Uh, I put out a blog post yesterday. I will link to that blog post from today's show notes. I'll do that for the next four weeks. It's a four-week contest. It's pretty cool. Basically, you go by their site and ask a legitimate question about one of their products, and they'll answer it for you. And uh, there's everything you need to know to enter that contest there. They're giving away three prizes. That way, a lot of folks have, you know, a lot more folks have a chance to win instead of just one. First prize is $200 in ammo. Uh, second pl- place is $150. Third place is $100. Uh, and winners will be announced on October 21st, 2011, so take a shot at that. Next up, Ready-Made Resources has not yet awarded the AR-15 upper because a lot of people had problems uh, trying to enter the contest. Uh, people said that they either they didn't see the submit button on the form because of some kind of JavaScript error, or when they submitted, they were told they already entered when they hadn't already entered. So what Robert's going to do is, is actually extend the contest till Friday, And anybody who had that problem, and please, only if you had that problem, this is kind of on the honor system, but if you did enter, don't try to double enter. This won't work. I will put out in today's show notes, and I will put out a blog post about it later with Robert's personal email address, uh, not hyperlinked so that he doesn't go into a billion spam bots. And if you'll simply send him an email with your name, uh, your address, uh, in your email address in it and say, this is for the AR-15 upper contest. I tried to enter, and I had an error on my form. Uh, you will get added into the total number of people. And when he does a random number generator to pick the winner, you will be in the drawing. So he didn't want anybody to be left out. So he's made this right. And uh, again, all you'll have to do is send him an email. You'll have to look at today's show notes or the blog post I'll do later today. 
Uh, and I'll put this on Facebook and Twitter as well, so you, so everybody can be informed about it. Uh, that if there was a problem, uh, you know, Robert's going to make it right. With that, let's go ahead and take care of the actual sponsors of the day today. Sponsors of the day number one today, HarvestEating.com. The wonderful Chef Keith Snow. Uh, I'll tell you what, I talk about all this cool stuff to grow in different seasons and things like that, and things you can get from farmers markets and CSAs, and some of it's stuff that you're not just, you know, used to showing up at a, a grocery store and picking up off the shelf. So what do you do with it all? Well, what you do is you, you tool on over to HarvestEating.com and you uh, you hook up with Chef Keith Snow and he teaches you how to cook seasonally and locally uh, and make great food that your family will enjoy. Again, HarvestEating.com. Next up today, SilverAndGoldShop.com. Uh, Mary Beth Maidmont's operation. She's been with us for a very, very long time. Uh, just said she's going to extend for another year when her contract expires. And I think that's pretty much what all her sponsors do because they love doing business with the audience. Mary Beth has a special place in the heart of many members of this audience, though, because of how great she takes care of people with customer service. Um, the silver and gold industry is made up of two types of people. People that are extremely honest and upright and people that are not so much. And we talked about that a little bit yesterday with some questions on, uh, actually Monday, on some questions on, you know, who do I sell my silver and gold to? And, you know, the we buy gold is always paying way under the actual value, that type of thing. Well, Mary Beth is firmly in the camp of, of high integrity, upright, moral, and taking care of her customers because she wants to build lifelong uh, relationships with her customers. She's the opposite of what today's show is about, consumerism. She's about good old-fashioned value. So if you're looking to add to your silver and gold collection, if you're looking to put some things into the hands of maybe some kids this Christmas, instead of buying them Chinese-made crap in the consumerism category, consider checking out silverandgoldshop.com for some of the coolest silver rounds and innovative gold products I've ever seen. Next up today, remember, connect with me Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Those are the best ways to do that. Check out our forum, check out our gear shop, and do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Uh, unlike what I'm about to tell you about as far as the way people market a product, I market a product that's designed to put money back in your pocket. Uh, that is what Member Support Brigade does. If you are buying any of the stuff that we talk about on the show for gardening, for long-term food storage, for tactical needs, for anything like that, uh, I can just about guarantee you that a $50 a year membership to TSP will put the money back in your pocket uh, several times over every year. I'll also tell you that you'll be supporting the show that you listen to every day at 20 cents an episode. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. So um, what I want to start out with, again, is a little bit about this book. Uh, the book is called Early Retirement Extreme, and there's a website for it. I'll link to both today. I'm going to get in touch with the author about being on the show as a guest, but I'm going to finish his book first so I can do a really good interview with him and do a good job for him when I bring him on the show. But as I was reading it, there were a lot of things in it that, in fact, this is actually kind of a, a kind of a book that I don't generally like to read. I don't generally like to read a book where every time I read a sentence I go, well, I knew that, well, I knew that. I, it, it, it's kind of a boring thing for me at times uh, to read a book that doesn't bring me new information. Uh, where I'm just nodding my head along the whole way, especially, you know, not a fiction book, but a factual book. And uh, But as I'm reading this book, what I'm realizing is this is all stuff that I know pulled together and articulated differently than I would articulate it. Now, that's a book I actually like, like to read because it lets me take my knowledge that I already have and combine it and extrapolate new things with it. And that's, that's actually what I consider a very high-level written book. When you can write a book with material that a reader already basically knows and change, those, change the way they think about the knowledge they already have, I find that to be uh, a quite a high-level intellectual achievement. So I like what the guy's doing. But a lot of the terminology in there is what I would consider permaculture technology, uh, terminology. 
And the one that I saw that really hit me was a climax stage. And a climax stage in permaculture is different than what he's talking about, but the same. In permaculture, if we're building, a, we have a field. It's a vacant, destroyed field. And we might go in there and put a lot of annual plantings and herbs and things like that, but we'll bring in pioneering trees, and we'll start to push it toward a climax. And eventually, when we get into a climax stage, what we're going to have is the field is now going to be forest, and there's going to be food falling from the trees, and there's a world of abundance. But that very climax means that we've now, in a succession in time, uh, headed toward a de decline, that the forest must mature, and eventually some of the forest actually has to thin out so that a new, a new secession can begin. And that we could go through the same stage over and over again. And what he was saying is that our, our economy has reached a climax stage. Meaning that our companies are now less innovating and less trying to come up with the next new product and more trying to capture existing market share. When I read that, as someone who consulted in marketing, and I'm going to tell you some things that you may not realize at all today about how companies develop products, how companies market products, how companies think, uh, that might shock you. Uh, you might be surprised at how predatory the design really is. And I don't think the people operating the design think of themselves as predators, but he was dead on. In, in your grandparents' day and age, when a company wanted to come out with a new product, they had to pretty much invent a new product. Um, you didn't just like, okay, well, so-and-so manufactures the, you know, the, the green widget, and we're going to make a better green widget. Uh, there was a little bit of that. There always will be in a competitive market, and in some levels that's good because your green widget has a feature the old green widget didn't have. But when you do that for a long enough period of time, eventually you start adding features and benefits to a product that nobody asked for. Um, you know, you have a, you know, back in the day when the VCR was the thing. Remember before DVD players? And they started building these VCRs, and the list of features was like, You know, the, the box, you had to turn the box to the other side to see all the features. And people would buy the one that had more features, yet they, they barely knew how to set the time. Uh, there were people that used to joke that you put the black piece of tape over the blinking 12, and all you did with the VCR was stick it in there, shove a tape, and it hit play. And then rewind and then put another tape in and watch that one and return it to the, the video store. But yet they kept adding all these features. Well, that's, that's indicative of a climax stage with, with product life. There's nothing new in that world. And the only thing that stopped the madness of the VCR was the DVD player. Well, then we go from DVD to Blu-ray for high definition. And you put a guy like me in front of the TV and I go, I don't even see a difference between the two. But some people do. But how far are we going to go with that madness before something completely new, a completely new product that has a, a real new value to the consumer comes along? And the answer is we are well in between uh, innovations anymore. All we're doing is making computers store more information and go faster. All we're doing is making pictures a little bit more clear. All we're doing is making iPods and, and, and similar products hold a little bit more information. The innovation... It's not coming from the big companies anymore. If you think about all the innovation, if you think about your iPhone and go, well, that's the most innovative thing that's ever happened since sliced bread. Really? It's an iPod with a phone. Where's the innovation come from in the iPod and the Android and Windows 7? It comes from the small business person that's developing the applications to run on the platform. If you took away the independently developed apps on the iPhone, you have a GPS, an iPod, and a phone. And that's it. It's, it's all about the small business person. So it's not that there's no innovation in the marketplace today. It's that the large companies 
have ceased to innovate, and we've come to a climax stage, basically a new dark age. And I've got a really cool guest tomorrow that was unschooled uh, that's going to tell you her viewpoint of the dark age, and I think you'll, you'll find it interesting. So make sure you tune in tomorrow for that. Uh, but I won't go any deeper there. But just that's kind of one of the things that I looked at, and the guy doesn't say the word permaculture yet in the book, and I'm just reading the book and going, this guy's got to be familiar with permaculture concepts to tie these things together this way. So that got me thinking about doing today's show. The next thing that was in the book, and the last thing I'll talk about before I move on to the to the core of what we're going to talk about today, is that he divided people up in the world into four classifications. And I'm thinking the guy also, you know, read Rich Dad Poor Dad. Um, you know, we had he had you know the the the, the working, you know, the the, uh, the salaried person, the independent person, the business owner, and the investor, the cash flow quadrant. Um, but he divides them up quite differently and a more innovative way. He calls them the working man, the salary man, the businessman, and the renaissance man. And he talks about, you know, first really the salary man. The salary man is the guy that's paid a salary. He's got a guaranteed income. Now, it may not be a salary. It may be an hourly wage, but he's going to go work for the same place every day for as long as I'll have him there, and he's going to stay there as long as he possibly can. And he's the most, most specialized in knowledge. He has the least amount of general knowledge, the most amount of specialized knowledge. It's paid for at a very high price out of the collegiate system, which I'll leave alone today. But you understand what I'm saying there. It's very, and that it's very high cost of replacement of knowledge. As technology moves forward, the salary man has to completely learn. The more, like it's when you get into engineers and, 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 and scientists and chemists and things like that. Or it has to completely let go of everything he learned and rebuild that knowledge base again. And it's a very expensive, laborious process to stay ahead of the competition in his specialized niche. The working man is what we would think of more as the odd jobber or the independent contractor, uh, which may be very much a self-employed person, but he works projects. And will go periods of time with work and periods of time without work and just accepts that's the way his life is going to be. And in many ways has some advantages over the salary man and in other ways doesn't. But he's much more broad in general with his knowledge base, but he's still dependent on somebody else for his income. Then we have the businessman, which many people aspire to be in this world today. And uh, up until I read this book, it's pretty much how I would have classified myself. I have a company. I have a couple other little companies. I'm kind of getting started and off the ground. Uh, I can call myself a businessman. But what he's talking about with the businessman here is the business world I walked away from, where you have to have bondholders and shareholders and financing to even operate because you're operating at a level so far above the world that I'm operating in today, and it's so cutthroat, there's such a cost of operations, and you have to have multiple people in your staff, and you have to have these specialized salary men working for you, and you have to have some of these working men as contractors come in and out of the business, and you have all this expense, so you're leveraged into the business. And that has some advantages and some disadvantages. We won't go to any of those today. I just want to give you the, the frame of reference here. And then he said there's the Renaissance man. And the Renaissance man of old was the guy that could play an instrument, paint, new poetry, new philosophy, new science, new history, um, might dabble in business, might do some work here, might take a break there. Um, and I realized that that is actually the philosophy by which I run business today. That I actually ran away from the large business world because I hated it. And by the time I'm done today, you're going to understand why. And if you look at how I run Survival Podcast or how uh, the new agriculture is going to be run, or if you look at the way that everything's done fairly and equitably uh, with, with things that I do, where uh, even a product that you pay for is a voluntary product and you get all the information for free and you decide if you want it, uh, you're going to see how incompatible that is 
with the real world, if you want to call it that, or the businessman world where the businessman is operating at a level to control the salaryman and to a lesser degree to exert some control over the working man. And I think it's really going to... I know today's show might sound a little dry at first, but I think it's going to change the dynamic of how you look at everything. If you really stick with me through today's episode... By the time you're done with it, you're probably going to want to listen to it again and maybe one more time in the next couple of weeks. And when you walk down the, the, the aisles of a store, uh, from anything from a Walmart to a high-end store, it's going to change the way you see everything. And that's my goal today, to make you change the way you see everything. And in some ways I want you, and not always, because you know I, I talk about our grandparents all the time, and I think they were some pretty smart people, but they had some limitations. And one quick story to kind of illustrate that. My father-in-law lost his wife of many years, uh, about, I guess, 12, 14 years ago now. And uh, a few years after that, he met a, a lady uh, about his age, and they're both in their, I guess they're both in their 80s now. And uh, she was, I think, in her 70s at the time that this happened. And, you know, they had gotten cell phones. It was a big deal for them. And it had the basic, it sounded like the old ringer, bang, on her cell phone. And we were sitting around. My son was there. And, you know, how kids are with electronics. They figure any electronic device out like five seconds. And, um, you know, my phone rings. And it's got this, you know, unique ringtone on it. And she goes, oh, what's that? And I said, it's my ringtone. And she goes, oh, really? You can change that? And she And I went, yeah. And Matt goes, I, I can take your phone and change it and show you all the ones you have and set it to the one you want. And her response was, oh, you better not. It's though something bad was going to happen. And in that generation of people and further back, there was some of that. So when I say we need to think more like them, I mean we need to take the, the strong roots that they had and, and not be afraid of new technology at the same time. So... Make sure you understand, I'm not asking you to become an old fogey here, folks. And if you are an old fogey, I'm going to ask you to, to, to hang on to those roots, teach the next generation, and also embrace some of the new things that are out there because innovation is what we're lacking today. It's not that we have too much of it. People think the consumerism problem is because of innovation. It's actually due to the lack thereof. And it'll make perfect sense today. But let's just start off with how our grandparents, this is how I remember my grandfather talking about something when he was thinking about buying it. His first question was, do I need it? Now, if, if the answer was no, and it was always no, all right, unless it was like I, you have to get to work and the car broke down and I got to buy a new car or fix the old car and one of those two things has to happen, that would legitimately be a need. Almost everything else that you can possibly think of, the answer to the first question is going to be no. And the reason it's going to be no is I was alive yesterday and I didn't have it. I'm alive today and I don't have it. So by its very nature, I do not need it, all right? But if it's a need, if it is like the first example, then I have to figure out how to make it work. So the first thing I have to do is get through that. And that's what, that's what they did. And that's what I do in my life today. Do I need this? And I always know the first answer is going to be no. Doesn't mean I'm not going to buy it. Um, but I'm going to go to my second question and the second question I've learned from my grandparents. Does anything I have fill the role now? In other words, if I want this functionality or this entertainment or whatever it is, if I want this in my life, is there anything in my life that I own right now that's doing it for me? If I'm thinking about buying a new garden hose, do I really need to get rid of my old garden hose? Right? Um, and the answer might be, I don't know. Maybe the reason I don't like my old garden hose is every time I turn the water on, it sprays everywhere because it doesn't couple up to the hose bib right. Well, do I need a new garden hose? Is it really old? Is it really worn out? Or do I need to take my razor knife, cut the end off, go down to the hardware store, buy a part and a hose clamp and put a new fitting on my existing hose and put it back on? 
Does anything I have fill this role now? And is that item really, is really beyond its useful life? And if it is not beyond its useful life, can I repair it? And in many, many cases today, the answer of can I repair it is no, and you'll see why that's the case here in just a minute. Um, but that's the next question. And then, how long will it last? You know, my grandfather always told me, people think I'm cheap. I'm not. I'm frugal. And there's a big difference, son, and here's what it is. A cheap person buys the cheapest thing they can get their hands on. A frugal person buys the lowest cost item that's going to last the longest. So I'll pay, a garden hose is a great example of this, I'll pay a lot more money. I'll pay twice as much for a hose if I think it's going to give me 10, 12 years as long as I take care of it uh, versus buying one that I know is going to only last me a couple years. So buy quality. Buy quality, but don't overpay for quality. You understand that just because it costs more doesn't mean it's going to last longer. Just because warranties today are crap. I'll get into that in a minute. But if it says lifetime warranty on it, forget that. You go try to return it in two years. Unless it's an established company that's built their brand on that type of service. Right? Remember Craftsman Tools? I don't, I haven't actually bought any Craftsman Tools lately. And they, the ones that I have, that I still have, I have from years ago, they don't break. But I, I have broken some things from, with Craftsman's name on it. And I don't know if it's still this way. You guys that are, that are still buying those tools and uh, if you have any experience with it can tell me if it is. But I remember one time I broke a, a socket. And I abused it. I had a cheater pipe on it. And I was trying to get a, a nut, a old rusty nut off a car. And the socket cracked. Right? And it was like a 916 socket. One you use all the time. And I showed it to my grandfather. And he goes, take it down to Sears. They'll give you a new one. And I'm like, but I, you know, here's what I did. I told him. I thought he was going to yell at me. He goes, ah, doesn't matter. I'll give you a new one. Really? So I went down there, you know. I was like 59 to get a ride with my dad. He goes, I don't know if they'll do this. We walk in. The guy goes, yeah, go get one off the shelf. And that was it. So there is that kind of, uh, of, of warranty out there. But most warranties you see on packaging today are meaningless. Because by the time you try to apply for the warranty, the people that are supposed to give it to you aren't even there anymore. Right? I saw that in the cabling industry. People were doing lifetime guarantees on cabling infrastructure. Well, they should. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't do anything. But the market reps told me the way we see it is by the time anybody's even thinking about that warranty, they're using that old cable as pull string to pull in new cable because they're upgrading their network anyway. So what the hell is a 25-year warranty in cabling when a guy's leasing the building in the first place, probably going to move his building, et cetera, ad nauseum. And that's how the marketing people think today. That's how the product development people think today. So how long will it last? And how long will it really last? The, the little thing on the, the label that says lifetime warranty doesn't have anything to do with it. You need to pick it up and look at it. You need to look at reviews. How long have people owned it? What problems have they had with it? The next one is, what will it do for me and my family? What is this actually going to do for me? Is it just an entertainment product? Doesn't mean I won't buy it, but if that's all that it is, let's be honest. Let's not let the sales collateral, the marketing collateral, convince us that this thing slices, dices, toasts, uh, boils eggs, and, and it makes my car smell fresh. Right? It doesn't do all of these things. What does it actually do? What role will it fill? I don't care it has 80 benefits. Which ones am I going to use? You know, these were, and these weren't, this wasn't formulaic. It's just how people thought. It was second nature to people. The next one, and this is the, this is the most important subtle difference today uh, from, from yesteryear. Today, we say to ourselves what when we're going to buy a product? How much does it cost? How much does it cost? And we, we do that in dollars. We say, okay, well, this is $40. 
And uh, if I finance it on a credit card, and I'm going to end up paying $60 for it, and we might, if we even go that far, so it's $60. Well, the person that makes $10 an hour needs to save themselves. I have to work six hours at my job to pay for this. The person that makes $20 an hour has to say, I work three hours at my job to pay for this. That's what they ask. How long do I have to work to pay for it? Mortgage on a house, i got to work 30 years to pay for it. Not really, but that's how they thought about it. Is this house worth 30 years of my life? Will I be here for 30 years? Not can I trade up next year to some other fool that pays more for the house than I did. How long must I work to pay for it? That was a question that they always asked. That was a question my grandfather asked me. Even when I would do things like trim the rose bushes, work in the garden, whatever, and they'd give me some spending money, you know, and I'd have a couple weeks worth of that and have about 15 bucks saved up, you know, for doing some odd jobs for the neighbors too. And I'd say, I'm going to go buy this down at Center Supply. And he'd say, how long do you have to work to pay for it? Now what? It's three bucks. Well, how many hours did you work for that three dollars? It was an interesting thing. It made me think about it. And then the last question, and this is the question I just think America has stopped asking themselves when they're going to buy something today. If I don't buy it, what difference does it really make? I mean, if, if it's the car we started out with and I don't buy it and I can't go to work tomorrow, it makes a big flipping difference. Right? It makes a big flipping difference. Because I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to earn my money. I'm not going to put food on the table. It matters. If I don't buy that new thingamabob, uh, just because a neighbor bought one, and he's got one and I don't, does it really matter in my life? And it, these are questions you have to answer for yourself. And I'm not anti-capitalism. I'm not anti-marketplace. I'm not anti-competition. I'm not trying to talk you to becoming an independent socialist. For God, love the love of God, you know better than that. I'm a libertarian. I think anything you really want to buy, if you have the money and you want it, and you go out and buy it, great. I'm just saying that maybe we should ask a few questions before we make that decision. And that if we look back to the questions our grandparents asked, and our great-grandparents asked, and we don't couple that with this fear of evolution, like my, my father-in-law's girlfriend who didn't want the ringtone changed, and she didn't know why, but oh, you better not. And there was legitimate fear in her voice. We, don't, we, we take the good and we leave that fear of evolution back, then we have a lot more power today than they did then. We have a lot more options today than we did then. But options for options' sake, you know, they lead us down a pit. So here's the part that I promised you today. This is, I think, going to be eye-opening for you. When I put together a product as a small business person, I put it together around I want to sell what people want uh, versus what they need. I want to make sure I'm selling to the want, to the desire. Um, I put it around a golden trifecta of marketing. And I find it very much a market-serving philosophy to have. I want to know, uh, is this product going to uh, yield a profit to my customer? If I can sell a customer a product for $50 and they will profit $100 this year on it, they would be foolish not to buy it and it makes sense for them. Will it, will it educate them and thereby be in some way profit-yielding to them? Uh, or so that's that's one. The next thing is I want to know, uh, or can the product be life changing for them? Will it change the way they view life and make their life better going down the road? And if I can bring uh, either profit yielding or life changing to a person, I know that I'm going to be bringing them real value. And the last one in that trifecta is entertaining. If I can en legitimately entertain people, they're going to have a certain amount of value there. Uh, some people will choose to take another type of entertainment. That's fine. But it's entertainment, profit yield, life change. Those are the, the cores that I build uh, business on. And 
if I can do that, I know that I can build a solid relationship with my customer and that I'm going to have a lifelong relationship with my customer because people want and like and enjoy those things. And if I can make their life better in some way, great. You would think that that would be a great formula for mega businesses to operate under, but it's not. Now, if a product like that falls into their lap, they'll, they'll run with it, uh, but they're also going to put it into their format. So I'm going to tell you what questions are asked by big business people when they look at marketing a product or service. The first and foremost is, can we create a fad or cult following around it? You know, If we can do that, we can sell it to people just for stupid reasons and stupid prices. If we can make everybody want it or some small segment of society want it and value it above everything else, then, then that's perfect. And it doesn't matter if it's a piece of crap. As long as I can create a cult following around it, then I can sell the hell out of it, right? Can I create the next pet rock? It's a stupid freaking rock with a couple eyeballs on it, right? Back in the 70s, guy sold a million dollars worth of freaking rocks. Why? Because it, it had a fad, you know? Sea monkeys, half the time they don't even work, right? These are examples of old school uh, concepts of this, but, you know, is, is your iPod or iPhone really better than the Android phone, you know? But there's a certain value to the brand alone, And if you can create multiple camps and everybody can take one of them, so much the better. Peace at war with business fighting business. The next one is, what existing market share can we capture with it? Almost no company today wants to create a new market. Um, my goal when I started the Survival Podcast was actually to create a market. There was no survival, preparedness, homestead, uh, podcast, audio show, radio show, anything like that in existence in 2008 when I did this. There just wasn't. And anybody that will be honest about it will tell you the same thing. There were a couple people that threw up a podcast or two. They do like one in March, one in June, and one in September and quit and hadn't done them for a year. That was the closest thing to it. It's a big part of why I did it. I wanted a show like this, and I couldn't find one. So I went out and I created a market. And today, and I'm not saying anything negative about it, I, you know, I'm about to cut a deal uh, with the Prepper Podcast Network to syndicate my content in their network. Uh, and I love what John and, and Doc are doing over there. I think it's great. But I created this space. And it's a very risky thing to do because the, the odds of failure are very, very high when you create a market. And I'm not saying this to you know toot my own horn here. I'm saying this to illustrate for you what it's like when you go into dark waters alone. There's nobody there to already capture. So there was no market share in people that listened to preparedness-style podcasting or homestead-style podcasting. It didn't exist. And we went and created a business, a big business, a multinational business, will very seldom take a risk like that. And if they do, they'll put the toe in the water very, very gently. What they prefer to do is go, okay, we're going to make a product to sell to golfers. And golfers are per currently buying this product. This product that we're going to build is a lot like the existing product, and we know what the market share of that product is. We're going to market our product and make it do something just a little bit different And we believe that we can capture in the first year 20% of that existing market share so we know that we can spend X dollars of innovation, development, product manufacturing, and distribution in return for that market share. And if we fail by 50%, we're still going to break even if we only get 10% of that market. Even 10% will establish us in the market. Therefore, this is a business decision we can make, and we're going to go capture that market share. 
There's nothing at all innovative or moving forward about that. We're in a climax stage of business. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you understand that when these new products come out, that very discussion probably took four weeks, even though it was just down to that in a nutshell, in a bunch of boardrooms and a bunch of guys in suits that don't give a shit about you and they don't care about your experience. They do care a little bit about it, but they really don't. And I'll get to that in a second. The next one is, can we build a market with this new product to sell subsequent products too? In other words, can we sell the next generation to it? Can we go from iPod to iPhone to iPhone 2 to iPhone 3 to 3G to 4 to 5? Can we do that progression? Can we upgrade the product and charge for the upgrade even though the old product still works? Or can we design the old product to fail, which I'll get to in a second? But can we create a market to sell other collateral product too? Whether it's an upgrade or a new piece of garbage to sell down into our market. If we get people hooked... On testing cable, can we get people hooked on testing patch cords? All right? I mean, this, I'm telling you, I've worked for companies in these industries. This is how marketing development goes. This is what people think. If we do this, we know that it will only last for X factor in time before, if it's successful, competitors will come in and start to innovate around our product and take the product forward with more features and benefits that aren't really necessary. So we have to be prepared before we start the first product. We have to know what the second product is going to be, what it's going to look like, what we're going to sell it for, and how we're going to create the transition. So by the time all of the piranha catch up to us from the competing companies, we're already taking the market in a new direction. But it's still not innovative. It's still just a faster processor or a bigger screen. And if they're thinking the way that I'm telling you, and they are, trust me, then you could have had the bigger screen today. You could have had the faster processor today. You could have had the, you know, 90% of what they'll add is something they could have put in the first generation that they held back so there could be a second generation. 10% of it will come with furthering of technology. But 90% is already in the bill of goods, bill of sale for generation 2, generation 3, generation 4 of the product when they put the first product out. You see how you're being manipulated with this. The next one is, is it consumable or designed to fail? And this ties right back into the last one. There's, there's two types of products that a business loves to sell and build a market with. One is a consumable product, a vitamin pill. You take it, you eat it, you need it more next month, you buy it again. So you have to keep replacing it. They don't like to build a product that lasts a long time. You buy it once and you're good to go. They like to sell food. Biggest industry in the world, uh, biggest industries in the world are energy and food. You put gas in your car this week, you're probably going to put gas in your car next week. You put food in your body this week, you're probably going to put food in your body next week. Why do you think those two industries are so corrupt and have so much lobbying force in government? Pharmaceuticals and drugs. Right? Those are optimal consumable products. That's a perfect example of a consumable. But there's other consumables, bottled water. God forbid we would drink the water that came out of our faucet. And I know there's things in there you want out. Buy a Berkey. Then you can, you know, buy a set of filters once every five years. And you have great water right out of your faucet because the stuff in the bottle came out of somebody's faucet. Right? Most of these bottled water companies, folks, they don't come from springs and all these pictures of Brooks. They, they, they're, you know, one of the biggest water bottle companies in the world is in Houston. They use the same water that comes out of Houston tap. They just run it through a filter. They put it in a plastic bottle and they sell you a half a cent's worth of water and a half a cent manufactured cost of a plastic bottle for 89 cents. And you buy it. 
Because it's consumable, it's a good business model. And they can create a fad on it. And they can put all kinds of colorful marketing into the label and in the messaging and everything else. And even though it's exactly the same as the competitor's bottle of water, they know that one company is going to carve out one cult niche following and the other is going to carve out another. And this is exactly how these decisions are made. The next one, or next part of that is, can we design it to fail? Do you understand that products are designed to fail today? Um, if it has a two-year warranty, it's probably designed to have a two-and-a-half to three-year life cycle. And if we design it so that it can't be repaired, there's no user serviceable parts on the inside, all we need is a single component to have a mean time between failures that just exceeds the warranty or just exceeds the person's desire to return it. How many of you have ever legitimately returned an item that was over two years old? Most people, after an item's two years old, I was going to buy a new one anyway. I mean, even if there's technically a warranty on it, where's the paperwork? I mean, some people are religious about this. They save their paperwork. You know, they they fill out the warranty card. They do all that. But most consumers, if something lasts long enough, uh, they don't even bother with it. So a company designs it to fail, so you'll go back and buy another one. Again, I want you to understand that it's not just that this stuff happens. It's that before the product exists, when it's still on a spec sheet and it's in a proposal stage, these are the questions that are being asked. The next one, how cheaply can we make it? You know, I want to know what we can sell it for, but more importantly than, than what we can sell it for, how cheaply can I manufacture this? Um, will the Chinese make it for us? Can I have this fabricated in India? Um, can I have this part made in China, this part made in India, assemble it in the U.S. and market it as a U.S. product, even though 90% of the labor is done offshore? There's no hiding this stuff. Like, this is not subversive. If you sat in at any major corporate marketing product development board meeting, the, the, the guy, people ask these questions outright. Can we market this as an American product but do 90% of the work overseas and cut costs? All right? Um, what can we do? Okay, you have that one component in there. Why? And the engineer says, because it's the best component we can get at the best price in the industry today. And the guy goes, is that over-engineering it? And the engineer, who's trying to build the best product he can, says, what do you mean? Well, what's the life cycle of this product? The engineer goes, it can last forever. And he goes, no, 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 I don't want to talk to you anymore. I want to talk to the marketing guy. What's the life cycle of this product? And the marketing guy says, oh, the life cycle on this product's about two years. And the guy goes, okay, I don't want any components in this product that are going to last longer than three. I want a three-year MTBF built product. MTBF, mean time between failures. Uh, when you buy high-end hardware, software, things like that, a carrier-class stuff that does need to last, it's going into uh, a phone uh, co-location facility. Uh, you'll, you'll get on a spec sheet what the mean time between failures is. Any component that you put into any product that's electronic in nature, uh, generally from the manufacturer, you can get mean time between failures. The longer those mean time between failures, the more expensive and the better built the product is. And they're looking for low MTBF rates, low-cost product, so that the product is, is designed to fail. This is designed in from the beginning, folks. I'm, I'm telling you, there's nothing here I'm making up. There's nothing here I haven't seen firsthand. This is how products are developed today. Next on our list, so we keep moving here, um, can we outsource most of the work? That's, that's always something people want to do. And this is not just uh, doing China, India, Philippines, whatever. Uh, actually, most manufacturing companies today don't want to manufacture. They want to, they want the product, they want to own the product, they want to have a patent on the product, they want to have rights to the product, they want to sell the product, they want to put the product for distribution, they want somebody else to do all the crap and the work of manufacturing it, and when somebody cuts their finger off, they want them to pay for it. So the outsource component of it 
is not just about overseas. It doesn't matter if you're outsourcing to a company in Atlanta, Georgia, or Sheboygan, Illinois. Can I get the, the, the messy part of the job, uh, the risky part of the job, the part where the supplies might not come in on time and there's going to be a loss due to a penalty? Can I, out, can I defer the risk? Can I defer the danger? Can I defer the health insurance costs? Can I defer as much as possible and just get the product at a fixed price so I know what my sell price and my margin is? So can I outsource most of the work? Um, will it last long enough to avoid returns? I told you they don't really care about your user experience. They do. It, most products, if they'll last a year, most people won't bother returning them. Even if they could. They just won't. Uh, most products that last a year, the person will actually blame themselves for breaking it, like I did with the uh, socket, which actually probably was my fault because it was probably 25 years old when I did that. But most people, once the product goes a year, it's time for a new one in this society, especially in the world of consumable goods uh, or the world of consumer-grade goods. Uh, so that's, that's a big thing. Is if, if long as I can, I can build it good enough that you're not going to be shoving them back at me, they're not going to be coming back the day after they go out, then that's good enough. The next one, can we sell it for less than our competition? So, again, remember the scenario. We're going to go out. We're going to build this widget to sell golfers that actually already exists. We're going to make it shinier or rounder or sharper or faster or whatever it is or a different color, and we're going to claim it to be this new innovative thing, but it's really the one that already exists. Well, if I can go out and do all that and then sell for a price point under my competition and still be profitable, well, that's a great business decision for me in the modern marketing world. That's what they want to sell you, folks. And then if the answer is no, it doesn't shit can the idea, then the next question is, or can we justify a premium at little to no internal cost? Can we do something with this product that makes it worth more in the eyes of the consumer, even if we could sell it for the same price and be profitable, or even go a little bit under, what I'm really looking for is, how can we do absolutely nothing to improve quality but make the consumer believe that there's an advantage so they will pay us 10% more than our competition and we're manufacturing at the same price as our competition and therefore we're making a greater, we're doubling our competition's profit because they're on a 10% margin, we're on a 20. And actually the margin they're looking for, folks, is going to be somewhere between 60 and 120%, depending on the specific industry that they're in. So that if the competition's at 60, can I get to an 80% margin Make the consumer think they're buying more and actually do nothing to earn it other than do a better job with my marketing team convincing you that I did. Now, that was like a whirlwind. But again, I want to reiterate here as I'm done with those things. That is the absolute, 100% God's honest, hand up to, to God truth. And I know these things for a fact because I've worked with companies that think this way. I've sat in on discussion groups and product development groups and board meetings where people have said these exact words and worse. And I want you to take that in and maybe you have to listen to that again. And maybe you have to share that with your kid even though I did use one four letter word in it. Because it's the truth and it's the way these conversations go. But maybe you guys have to listen to it three or four times and then take a walk through an aisle at a department store. And see if it changes everything about the way you look at everything that you're looking at. And, I mean, this would all be useless today if I didn't tell you how to avoid the consumer's trap and still have fun and cool stuff, right? I, I own GPSs, right? They, they, they've been through this same process. But some of them are pretty daggone good. 
all the stuff that we have out there and all the options that we have out there aren't bad in of themselves. They're bad because we abuse them. We're like, we're like crack addicts and we're just going from rock to rock burning one, you know, trying to stay high on this feeling because we're disconnected from what's real in our lives. So I have three things that you can do that will keep you 90% out of the consumerist trap and you're still going to make your own decisions and you're not going to not buy something because Jack said it's a dumb waste of your money. You're going to make your own decisions here. Number one, you should already know, knowing me. Avoid debt. If you take away the credit cards and you have to buy the gizmo with the money you earned yesterday and spend that money today and if you don't have enough money, you have to work for several more days and drive home that question of how long do I have to work for it you're going to make smarter spending decisions. We no longer buy things with the mentality of how long do I have to work to pay for it, what's on my monthly payment on it. So if we take away debt, 90% of the issue will just dry up and blow away. Number two, if it's a major purchase, and it's up to you to determine what that is, I would say if it's over 100 bucks, definitely. And uh, it's not something like, uh, you know, Mr. Mr. Spierko, we need to fix this part of your truck, and if we don't do it, your truck won't run anymore. If it's not that much of a need, if it's something that I won't, I won't die without in the next 48 hours, have a 48-hour waiting period before you make major purchases. Convince yourself, yes, I want, I want product XYZ because it slices, it dices, it does this and that. And you look at it, look at the money, and say to yourself, do I really want to buy it? And when you say yes, go home. And if it's a Wednesday on Friday afternoon, say to yourself, do I want to go back to the store and buy it? Now, this is not depriving yourself of anything, because if you really want it, what will you do? You'll go back and buy it. If on Friday you go, eh, I don't really know, hey, you know what? Ask yourself again on Monday. What you'll find is in many instances, the longer the time between where you were convinced you needed it, And when you're actually going to spend the money, the less likely you will be to buy it. Now, that's not me, you know, uh, you know, peeing in your Wheaties. That's not some, you know, old fogey telling you, ah, oh, save your money, boy. That is your own mentality and your own lifestyle going, do I really want and need this thing in my life? And am I willing to trade the X amount of hours, days, months, weeks, or years I worked for this money in return for this item? And I think what you'll find is you'll start looking for things that really bring entertainment value to your life, uh, really bring profit-yielding things to your life, uh, and really bring educational value to your life. That's what you're going to start doing. You're going to want to know more, do more, be more. You're going to want to live more like a renaissance man. And that's what you'll start investing in. And you'll realize, you know, I need things that produce for me. I need things that provide me energy and food and shelter and security. Right? I need to ensure... More accurately, as we've been saying lately, assure my future. And assure my future in a way that lets me live under my own decisions and choices. And upgrading my iPhone is probably not going to do that. Folks, I walk the walk. I have an iPhone 3G, 16 gig. And some of you out there have seen it. And if you've seen this and you're hearing me today, I want you to comment in today's show notes and say, Jack speaks the truth. Almost a year ago, I got out of my truck and I had my phone in my lap. It face-planted into the macadam, and it cracked the screen. And I have an iPhone 
with a shattered screen. It still works. I can still see it. It still functions. It does everything that I need it to do. When I watch a video on it, it's a little bit annoying. I put the main side of the crack to the bottom side of the phone, and I watch videos, and I make phone calls with it. I have not replaced my phone in a year, even with a cracked screen. Can I afford a new iPhone? You bet your ass I can afford a new iPhone, folks. Of course I can. But why am I not replacing it? Because it really isn't going to make a difference. I, I, people look at it and go, I can't believe you did. I, I don't care what you think about my phone. My phone is designed so I can talk to business contacts, friends, and family and get information and use the apps on my phone that make my life better every day. As long as this phone does that, it's good enough. Now, at some point, I may replace it. The cracked screen makes it more susceptible to moisture damage and things like that. And there is going to be a point in time where I'm going to go ahead and, and get a new phone. But I didn't just run out and do it. Well, I'm not saying that you should do the same thing. I'm saying that I put the thing through that, you know, you gotta buy a new one. They won't replace it. It's not covered by, by the insurance because of the way that it happens. So if I go buy a new one, it's, you know, three to five hundred dollars. Would I rather have three to five hundred dollars in my pocket in an iPhone with a cracked face or have an iPhone without a cracked face and, and, and not have my three to five hundred dollars? I'm keeping the three to five hundred dollars for as long as I can. I'm going to do as much with it as I can before I'm willing to part with it. And maybe when they come out with the iPhone five, I'll go in and extend my existing contract and get one for ninety nine dollars. Who knows? Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll carry this thing for four more years. I don't know. But right now, I know that it works. This is what I'm trying to say. And that forty eight hour waiting period will make you more likely to make decisions like that. Next one: Ask those questions our grandparents did. Real quick, going back to them: Do I need it? Does anything I have fill the role now? How long is it going to last? What will it do for me and my family? How long must I work to pay for it? If I don't buy it, what difference will it really make? So I asked those questions about the iPhone. And the answer was, do I need a new one? No. Does anything I have fill the role now? Yes. How long will it last? I don't flip and know. Uh, what will it do for me and my family? Nothing that the current one doesn't. How long must I work to pay for it? I don't know, a week? Something like that. If I don't buy it, what difference will it really make? None. I didn't need a 48-hour waiting period. Because those were the answers to the questions. It's amazing what happens when we ask the questions. So ask those questions that our grandparents did. And I really can't, even though I'm not done with the book yet, I can't recommend this book enough to you guys. I'm reading it on my Kindle. I think I paid nine bucks for it. Um, Early Retirement Extreme. Uh, I can't remember the author's name. Let me look it up real quick for you here. His name is Jacob Lund, and I, I really like uh, the book. So if you're looking for something that I think would be uh, entertaining, uh, profit-yielding, and possibly life-changing, that might be nine bucks worth spending. But ask yourself the questions before you spend the nine bucks, folks. It won't hurt my feelings none. I'll put a link to Amazon, but if you buy it, I'm going to make a nickel. So, um, you know, I, I'm just telling you that what I've learned in my life going forward, uh, since I've downsized my life, since I walked away from that corporate world, is I am a hell of a lot happier. You know, one of my people that I really admire what he's done online and built his business and everything is Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, but I had Gary on the show. If you guys remember, I went out of my way to bring Gary on the show, and he said something I've never heard him say anywhere else. And I was really kind of honored to hear him admit it here on my show. He said, can I say that I'm happier now than at any point in my life? And he said, I can't. Uh, I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm really not. That was a quote. That's how he said it. I can't. I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm really not. That's pretty, pretty assertive that I'm not happy now compared to how I've been happy at other points in my life. 
And I look at Gary and I think maybe you would be better off if you let somebody else run VaynerMedia since it is a cash cow for you now and went back to just doing wine podcasts and selling wine in your wine store and talking to small entrepreneurs a couple times a week about how they can become what you were and stay at that level. And I can't make that decision for him. And maybe he will actually be much happier when he achieves his dream of owning the New York Jets or uh, becoming a partial team owner someday. And maybe he has to build that huge, and maybe that's what it is for him. But I can tell you that when you say, I'm really not, I'm really not, I'm really not, it's telling you there's something wrong in what you're doing now. And I'll ask you today, are you happier now than you were at any time in your life? And if you answer that with, I'm really not, I'm really not, I'm really not, and at the same time, if I ask you, do you have more stuff now than you ever had in your life? And you answer that with, uh-huh, yeah, I do. Maybe stuff's not the solution. Maybe getting rid of some of the stuff and the expense of the stuff and the, and the clutter of the stuff is the solution. Maybe downsizing your life is the solution. Maybe stepping back is the solution. Don't do it overnight. Don't go home and go, honey, I know I make 180 grand as an engineer at Lockheed, but uh, Jack said to downsize my life, so I tendered my resignation today. That's going to be a poor quality conversation. It's not going to improve the quality of your life. But maybe it's, maybe it's I'm burned out on this. Maybe it's I want a more of a renaissance factor in my life. Maybe I want to live a little bit more like Da Vinci or Jefferson, right? Uh, two different people from two totally different words, but, but both people I would consider renaissance men. Maybe I want to live a little more like that. Maybe, but because I've already attached myself to some degree, maybe I now need to pay the price of extraction. And what is that price and how do I plan for it? What do I do and how do I make it happen? That's, that's what I'm really suggesting. And how much of that you do is your choice. Maybe you're going to say to me, Jack, I want every gadget, gizmo, whoop-de-doo, upside-down trick thing I can find out there. And I make lots of money and I work hard for it. And damn it, I'm going to buy it and that's what I want. If that's what you want, fine. But I think the majority of people that listen to this show, that's not who you are. That's not who you are. Uh, I said when I did my show about business uh, about a week ago, I knew my audience and the things I knew about you were you wanted something more in your life and you weren't sure what it was and, and maybe now you're on a path to what it is and you've answered that question for yourself, but the show helped you find what it was and the community helped you find what it was and other people in other communities like this have helped you figure out what it was or leading you down the path to find that. You wanted to know what you could do. Uh, you wanted to know how you could live a better life. You wanted to know how you could make your life and your family's life and the lives of people around you better. And you wanted to know if everything went to hell, how could you keep it? How could you keep from losing it? Right? How could you solidify your life in a way to prevent loss during a catastrophe? And some other things. And I actually had some people email me and go, dude, do you like have listening devices in my house or what? Because I think I actually freaked some people out when I went deep into that. So I won't redo it today. Um, but if you're that kind of person, then you probably don't really want a life where you're going to fill it up with a bunch of stuff. You want a life where you're going to fill it up with a bunch of quality and knowledge and education and, and meaningfulness and interaction. And if you do, tune in tomorrow. Because this gal that I interviewed already that I'm going to be putting on the air tomorrow that was unschooled, I think can go a long way toward helping you reconnect with that. And whenever you're thinking about making a purchasing decision... I just want you to ask yourself one question. Is this decision based on consumerism or common sense? Then go through the rest of the stuff we talked about today. And please do this for me, especially those of you with kids out there. Let them hear my one four-letter word. It's probably not as damaging to their psyche or their morality, okay, um, as uh, an episode of Two and a Half Men or Friends or something like that on regular TV all the time. 
Have them listen to this episode, specifically the part where I explain how decisions are made about building, making, and marketing products. Maybe listen to it twice with them, explain it to them, have a discussion with them, and take a walk through a department store. And in the, the, they say from the mouths of babes come the greatest truths or something to that effect. And your child may teach you in this one. Your child may snap to this quicker than you because he's been programmed for less than a period of time. He may be more susceptible to the initial marketing, but he's probably more likely to be uh, receptive to his own deprogramming by his own decision or her own decision. So learn from your kids, parents. They have a lot to teach us. If we'll open our ears once in a while and listen. And with that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. Like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay I guess we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way